I love food, and I enjoy going to restaurants, but my appreciation for restaurants pales in comparison to my friend Juan. Juan takes being a foodie to a whole other level. Juan will often plan his vacation trips around upscale Michelin star rated restaurants. But what Juan appreciates about those restaurants isn't just the food. It's the executive chef behind all the dishes. He'll tell me about how he went to this restaurant where so-and-so is the executive chef. To him, the executive chef really defines the restaurant and that in experiencing the food, he's in some way culinarily connecting with the famous chef. Going to restaurants isn't just about dining for my friend Juan. It's an entire journey. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and no, this is not a podcast from the Food Network. This is Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why behind Catholicism. And I'll explain in just a minute why I'm talking about restaurants, but first, let me give you a little recap. If you listen to episode one, I talked about how it's important to understand the why, and that to truly understand Catholic practices, we need to get to the why behind Catholicism. Then in episode two, I said that Catholicism is a language and a culture, and that to truly understand Catholicism, we must study it like an anthropologist studies a people group, learning how the practices and language intertwine together before jumping to judgments. Those episodes were laying down the groundwork for this episode, The Catholic Worldview. In this and the next two episodes, I'm going to talk about the worldview behind Catholicism. This is the why behind so many Catholic practices. If you can understand this, not just with your head, but with your heart, so much of Catholicism will begin to make sense. The underlying worldview for Catholicism, and Orthodox Christianity for that matter, is a sacramental worldview. In this episode, I'm going to approach the Catholic worldview in two ways. First, I'm going to start by explaining the nuts and bolts of sacraments, and then I'm going to spend most of the time talking about the spiritual, supernatural, and mystical nature of sacraments. So that we can understand what a sacramental worldview, let's start by defining and explaining the word sacrament. The word sacrament has a Latin and a Greek component. In Latin, sacrament comes from the word sacramentum, which means a sacred oath. It also comes from the Greek word mysterium, which means mystery. Thus, sacraments are both a sacred oath and a mystery. When Catholics participate in one of the sacraments, they are making a sacred oath and in turn are interacting with God and all of heaven in a holy mystery. If you were to consult a dictionary, you get definitions like a sacrament is an important religious ritual. However, it's much more than that. According to the Catholic Church, a sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Again, let me stress this give and take. It's an outward sign, hence a sacred oath, or in Latin, a sacramentum. These sacraments were instituted by Christ, but to what ends? To give grace. The giving grace part is the mystery, or in Greek, mysterium. It's been the long-held tradition of Christianity that there are seven sacraments. Both the Catholic and Orthodox churches identify them as follows. There are the sacraments of initiation, which are baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist, also known as communion. Uh, There are the sacraments of healing, which includes reconciliation, also known as confession, and anointing the sick. And there are the sacraments of service, which are holy orders and marriage. In each of the sacraments, we see both a sacred oath and a mystery. For example, in marriage, you are pledging fidelity to your spouse in sickness and health until death do you part. That's one serious and sacred oath. But what about the other component? What about the mystery? Four times in scripture, we see a phrase that gets repeated. It's mentioned in Genesis 2 and both Jesus and Paul repeat it. The Bible says, a husband will be united with his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What does to become one flesh mean? We could go on and on speculating, but the Catholic Church is intent on saying it's a mystery. 
When we participate in the sacred oath of marriage, God comes alongside and does this mysterious act, providing this grace, causing two to become one flesh. We do one part, and God does another. What's essential to understand here is that there is something substantially and supernaturally transferring when we participate in the sacraments. The door or the portal between heaven and earth is opening, and God in some way is extending the eternal glory of heaven to us. Sacraments are not merely symbolic. Let me say that again. Sacraments are not merely symbolic. Sacraments have a symbolic element to them. For example, the ceremony surrounding a wedding is full of symbols, but a sacrament is not merely a metaphor. God, in some supernatural way, is utilizing the elements of the sacrament to infuse us with heaven. He is, in a mysterious way, stirring the waters of baptism, present in the bread and wine of communion, healing through the oil used in anointing the sick. Catholics have a word for the transfer of that supernatural goodness through the participation and the elements of a sacrament. We call that grace. As a Protestant, whenever people in my circles talked about grace, it was generally limited to the moment we were saved. So if you're a Protestant listening to this, as you dive into Catholicism, you will hear the word grace over and over again because it's not a one-time thing. Every time we participate in a sacrament, we are experiencing God's grace. Remember how in episode two I mentioned that the conflict between Protestants and Catholics isn't so much theological as it is linguistic? This is a prime example. One of the things that many Protestants often accuse Catholics of is a works-based salvation. I'm actually convinced that Catholics and Protestants have very similar theology when it comes to concepts of faith, grace, and good works, and how we are justified. But they often talk past each other because they have different understandings of what faith and grace look like. We will definitely get into this in greater detail in future episodes, but for now, let me just say that Catholics believe that we are saved by grace through faith. These sacraments are acts of faith. When we participate in communion, for example, we are making a sacred oath. We are taking steps of faith and saying, God, we invite you into our lives. And by faith, we believe that God is extending an abundance of grace to us through the consecrated bread and wine. In fact, right before we receive the Eucharist, we say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Protestants who accuse Catholics of a works-based salvation get it so wrong. The issue is that we say the same word, faith, but we mean very different things by it. Receiving grace, and Protestants know this, comes with a component of faith. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? We are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the mechanism, so to speak, by which we receive grace. Mary received an incredible grace in being the mother of the Messiah, and there was a component of faith to it as well. Mary partnered with God. She said, be it unto me according to thy will. And likewise, these sacraments are the interaction between faith and grace, the partnership between us and God, the portal by which we experience heaven. I want to switch gears, and instead of the nuts and bolts of sacraments, I want to explain the beauty of a sacramental worldview and all of its mystery, holiness, and goodness, something we'll continue in the next couple of episodes. But for this episode, I want to use an analogy. I want to describe it in terms of a restaurant. You probably wondered why I was talking about restaurants at the start of this episode. This is why. There are two parts to restaurants. The front of the house where the patrons sit and eat their food, and the back of the house where the food is prepared. Separating the front and back of the house is usually a kitchen door, a swinging kitchen door of sorts. You know how restaurants go. The customer comes in, sits down, and the waiter takes the order. 
and then sends the order to the kitchen where the chef prepares the food. When the food is cooked, the waiter takes the food back to the customer who then eats the food. I know what you're thinking. Could you have made restaurant dining sound any more boring? But I don't want us to talk about a restaurant in that boring kind of way. I want us for a second to embody my friend Juan's passion for restaurants. I want you to close your eyes for a second. Unless you're driving, please keep your eyes on the road. But whether you're closing your eyes or you have them open, I want you to imagine the most exquisite restaurant. The lights are dim. The waiters and waitresses are wearing tuxedos. The tables are perfectly set. The fork is equidistant from the plate as the spoon. The plate is centered perfectly in front of the chair. A cloth napkin is folded on the plate. There's three different sized wine glasses behind your plate. Two will be removed based on the wine you select. No detail has been overlooked at this restaurant. We're not talking about Applebee's or Chili's here. We're talking about Michelin star restaurants. But it's not the ambiance that wins a restaurant Michelin stars, though maybe it helps. It's it's the food. To win the elusive three Michelin stars, a restaurant must serve up, quote, exceptional cuisine worth a special journey, end quote. And what's behind exceptional cuisine? World-renowned chefs. Chefs that think and dream about how to prepare culinary dishes. We're talking about the type of restaurants where the chef cooks what they want the customer to experience rather than merely taking orders from the customer. There may be a small menu to choose from, but this isn't the novel that gets handed to you like the one at the Cheesecake Factory with an exhaustive list of options enough to give you decision fatigue. In these refined eateries, the waiter or waitress doesn't ask you how you want your meat cooked. That's absurd. The chef knows exactly how to perfectly cook the particular piece of meat he or she is preparing. In these types of restaurants, my friend Juan might tell you, when you eat that food, you are mysteriously connecting in some mystical way with that chef. And a true foodie, someone like Juan, who seeks out these chefs in their restaurants can likely tell you the chef's style because their food is like a fingerprint or a signature. Are you hungry yet? This idea of a restaurant makes for a good metaphor of what happens in a sacrament. When a patron steps into a restaurant like this, they are entering the chef's domain. They are taking the step of faith, believing and trusting that they're going to be served food that was the creation of the chef. There's a mystery to it as well. We don't get to see how the food is prepared or everyone and everything it took to prepare it. We only see this delicious, delightful, carefully plated dish set in front of us. And when we taste it, we are experiencing in a substantial and real way the creation of the chef. The dish is the mechanism by which we experience the chef and taste the invention of his kitchen. So it is with us when we take part in a sacrament, we are stepping into God's domain. Heaven is near to earth. Heaven is reaching out to earth and we are tasting the grace and goodness of our creator. The sacraments are like these culinary works of art. They are meant to be consumed by the senses. In my journey to Catholicism, I began, like most, doing research, listening to podcasts, watching videos, reading books. But there came this moment where I said, I can only get so far learning about Catholicism from the outside. I need to go inside to immerse myself and experience it. And so I did, and I'm glad I did. I wanted to learn the language of Catholicism, but the best way to learn a language is to immerse yourself in the culture. Even though I was immersing myself, it felt a little bit like flying to France and going into one of Alain de Casse's restaurants. If you don't know who he is, he's the highest Michelin star rated chef in the world. 
I actually had to look him up. My friend Juan would be ashamed of me, but I digress. It was like going to his restaurant, sitting down, but not eating the food. Yes, the dining experience would be exquisite, but I was missing out on the most important part of being Catholic, experiencing the sacraments. Going to Mass is nice, however, receiving the Eucharist is the culmination of Mass. Watching a baptism is wonderful, but it's nothing compared to being baptized. Attending weddings is lovely, but it's no substitute for getting married. And so when I decided I want to become Catholic, I could not wait to partake in the sacraments. This next part, I don't know how to say it. Words are not enough. I can't prove it to you. All I can say is that in partaking of those sacraments, reconciliation, confirmation, and the Eucharist, which I did when I became Catholic, was absolutely mind-blowing. It was exceptional, worth a special journey. I take the opportunity to go to Mass whenever I can for the same reason Juan seeks out these renowned restaurants. He wants to experience the culinary genius of the chef. Before becoming Catholic, I was apathetic and somewhat indifferent about going to church. Honestly, I listened to better sermons on podcasts and had more moving worship experiences in my living room. Oh, but this is different. Experiencing the sacrament is not about going to church. We're not just going to church. We are going on a special journey to experience the exceptional and the extraordinary. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. That's from Psalm 84. That's from a person who has tasted the goodness of the chef and doesn't want to dine anywhere else. The best chefs, they make us think differently about the food. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and had a dish that was so mind-blowing that you struggled to ever order it again from somewhere else? I remember the first time I ate steak at Ruth Chris's Steakhouse. It was like butter had melted in my mouth. I didn't know steak could taste like that. But here's the problem. After that, I was spoiled. I could never order steak at some mediocre chain restaurant again. The more that I experience these sacraments, the more that I live in this sacramental world, the more I don't want to be anywhere else. Catholics, not the cafeteria kind that just show up for Christmas and Easter and brag about how much they don't believe. I'm talking about the devout ones, the ones that approach faith like Juan travels to restaurants. These people are obsessed with Jesus. They relish going to confession. They crave mass and receiving the Eucharist. And you don't understand it truly and completely until you experience it. Last November, I went to Puerto Rico and I asked my friend Juan, who's from Puerto Rico, for some recommendations. Of course, he recommended this really fancy restaurant in San Juan. He mentioned some chef's name and talked on and on about the food. It sounded good, so we made reservations and went. This was the type of restaurant like I had you visualize earlier. They obsessed over the details. As soon as one of us got up from our table to go to the restroom, someone appeared out of nowhere, tucked in our chair, and neatly folded our napkin. This was a place where they had a prefix menu, and it was like a three-hour dining experience filled with little complex plates. I'm embarrassed to say how much our total bill came out to, but let me just say that it was by far the most expensive meal I've ever had in my life. 
And you know what? My wife and I didn't really appreciate it. Certainly not nearly as much as Juan did. You see, before going to a restaurant, Juan researches the chef. He knows their background, knows what they're famous for. And the more he knows about the executive chef, the more he appreciates the dining experience. My wife and I merely showed up, unprepared, not knowing the executive chef or anything about the restaurant or the food, and certainly not how much that bill would come to. I might say that my wife and I went through the motions, whereas Juan dove into the experience. The difference between merely going to church in a profound spiritual encounter with the Creator in the Mass is expectation and preparation. When we spend our day or our week consuming the sewage of this world, we become so jaded and callous and blinded to the spiritual and supernatural. But when we spend our week thoughtfully and purposefully researching our Creator, expecting the culinary delights that await us, oh, Mass is an entirely different experience. It is euphoric. That door between heaven and earth swings open and we find that we have taken a journey to the exceptional and the extraordinary. You've been listening to Why Catholic. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Why Catholic podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Consider becoming a generous patron of Why Catholic. For just a few dollars a month, you'll receive some added benefits like being able to suggest future episodes, priority in having your questions answered in Q&A episodes, and connecting with me in live discussions over Zoom. Most importantly, a portion of your donation goes to support Catholic ministries. Go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe to get started. You can also follow Why Catholic on Instagram. It's at whycatholicpodcast. Thank you again for joining me. This has been Why Catholic. My name is Justin Hibbard. God bless you.